we took a look at some people, and oftentimes we think, well, if I had everything perfect in my life, then I wouldn't make bad decisions. Well, Adam and Eve had pretty much a perfect setting, perfect circumstances, and made really bad decisions. And then sometimes we think, well, if I just had enough courage, then I would not make bad decisions. Well, David was one who was incensed that the people of God were fearful because of a giant who was holding our God in contempt. And he took, as some people say, some rocks to a sword fight. Had no lack of courage. And yet he made some really, 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 really bad decisions. Today we're going to take a look at another one. And sometimes we think, well, if I just have enough knowledge, if I just have enough wisdom, then I won't make bad decisions. Well, today we're going to take a look at Solomon, who is known as the wisest man. And the sermon title today is, The Wisest Man Was Not Wise Enough. And there's going to be a link between these three episodes that I hope I'll, perhaps you'll kind of get as we go through, but if not, I will not leave you in your suspense. I'll tell you what the common thread between all of these really bad decisions have been. We in our society tend to think that information and knowledge will get us through everything. The problem is, is in our culture today, we have access to great information. You can ask Google for anything. You can ask Alexa on any question you have, and you can get information. But it seems that nobody has information in their head. They're always having to ask Google or somebody for that. But simply having information does not give you understanding or wisdom. There's a saying that says, if you know that a tomato is a fruit, is knowledge. Not putting it in a fruit salad is understanding. And so we sometimes take information and we're not sure what to do with it. And we see Solomon, who is the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he seemed not to have enough wisdom. So when we think, well, if I were just wise enough, then I wouldn't make bad decisions. We're going to take, if you will, that excuse away. So an unusual place we're going to start. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. And the context is, is that God in the book of Deuteronomy is preparing his people to go into the promised land. And he's reiterated his laws and he's reiterated things that they are to do and not do. And that's part of this. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gerzites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezzavites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them. So notice God is saying, you're not going to do this. I'm going to do it for you. Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, 
You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So he tells them they're not to do this. Now in what he's going to follow up, he's going to tell them not to do it, and then he's going to give them a why. So oftentimes, we, you know, parents, we tell our children not to do things like, don't put your hand on a hot stove and, and they don't listen to us until they get burned or whatever. And, but God is going to tell them why they're not to do this. Now, before I show why, God, a lot of times we think, well, God tells us not to do things because he just doesn't want us to have fun. He wants, us to, he wants to be the ultimate buzzkill. It's like, you know, God, if, if you didn't put all these restrictions in my way, then I could have a wonderful life. I could reach for all the gusto that there was. But God just, just doesn't want me to have fun. Well, the, God knows because he made us what our problems are. And so he puts up guardrails for us. Now, the problem is a lot of people think, well, the guardrails mean that you can go to the guardrail and then no further. Let's think about that. As you're driving down the road, usually you don't see guardrails unless there's a dangerous spot. So in most freeways on this, where it's straight, you don't see guardrails. You just drive. If there's a bridge or if, there, if you're in a mountainous road or whatever, then you'll see guardrails. Now, if you use guardrails to keep you on the road, guess what's going to happen to your vehicle? Depending upon how fast and how you hit it, you will at least scrape the paint, create dents or other damage to the vehicle, maybe even so much so that you can't drive it because the guardrail is not there to keep you on the road. It prevents you from going off the road. But we, we want to use God's word, if you will, as a guardrail. Well, I can bump up against it and I can bump up against it and no wonder so many of us live lives of wrecks. Yeah, sure, I didn't fall off into the ravine, but my, my vehicle, my body has been beat up because I've been bouncing against the guardrail. But God is going to say, you're not to intermarry. Not because he's prejudiced, not because he doesn't want to have fun. He's going to tell them, for they will turn your sons away from me, following, following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's saying if you intermarry, if you do these things, then they're going to take your heart from me and you're going to go pursue their God. Notice he's not afraid of them changing, them to following him. He's worried that they will follow after their God. So he says, don't participate. Don't even get close to that guardrail. So, you would think the wisest man in all the world to know what he was doing. So turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, 
Sodonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall you asso they shall associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their God. So the writer here of, in Kings is reminding us what God had told them, but Solomon chose not to listen to the word of God. And instead, he decided to marry a number of different women, which he's going to, so we're going to go on before I say that. Solomon held fast to these loves. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Now, first off, I would start to question how wise Solomon is if he chose to have 700 wives. I'm going to get in trouble because my wife's here. I have enough trouble having one woman tell me what to do. And when I don't listen to her, she then tells me I don't listen to her. Now, oftentimes she's right, okay? You know, it's not about being right or wrong. But can you imagine having 700 women telling you what to do and 300 concubines, which is kind of a, it's their version of, of um common law of marriage. They didn't go through a ceremony, but they're kind of like his wife. So he's got a thousand of them. So his wisdom is kind of suspect in my mind. But he has, but notice what they did. They turned his heart from God. He didn't turn their heart to God. They turned his heart from God. Well, what's the most important single greatest commandment in the scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. They turned his heart from the most important command of all. Now David violated the commands of God about uh, coveting and about adultery and about murder and about lying. Solomon, his son, violates the most important command of all. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Now notice, David's father, David, his father, had, had been a man after God's own heart. He sinned. But when he sinned, he repented. But notice what happened. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemos, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their God. Not only here did his wives turn his heart from God, 
he started having built temples and offering of sacrifices for those gods. Now, these gods were not just your run-of-the-mill gods. They accepted sacrifice by sacrificing children through fire. Solomon went so far as his lack of having a heart for God to build altars to sacrifice to these foreign gods. I mean, how far away from God can you get to do that? One day they say, God, you know, leave me alone or whatever. It's the other, to take and create places of worship close to Jerusalem, where God himself is to be with his people and to offer. And in, as part of their worship, they would have orgies and other types of temple prostitutes. The exact opposite of what God had called his people to be holy, they called their people to be unholy and unclean. And if you will, no different than the world. He not only turned his heart, not only to be with God or neutral, but to go after these other gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now I want you to understand something. Solomon knew the word of God. What I just read to you in Deuteronomy, Solomon knew. But God loved Solomon enough, he came to him a first time to say, what you're doing is wrong. And then came to him a second time and said, Solomon, what you're doing is wrong. You need to repent. At least David, when God sent a, the prophet Nathan, repented and sought the Lord. And I, we read that psalm of, of repentance and asking God to renew his heart. God himself appeared to Solomon, the wisest man, and yet Solomon did not repent. And he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. God is saying, I'm not doing this now, not because I'm not angry with you and not because you don't deserve it, because I'm going to honor your father whose heart was after me. So because of my commitment to David, you're going to hold on to the kingdom during your lifetime. But I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Sometimes God blesses us even when we've made bad decisions, 
not because of us, but because of his commitment to bless others. So don't think sometimes when you make a bad decision, everything doesn't turn out bad. It's because somehow God's happy with you. Maybe because someone in your family, God made a commitment. Now, you're going to say to me, well, that's interesting, Pastor Joe. I'm smart enough not to marry 700 women. Besides, it's against the law presently. Maybe in three weeks it won't be, but it, as we sit here today, it's against the law to marry 700 women or, or one woman to marry 700 men. So you say, well, you know, I don't have to worry about that. It's funny how the scriptures apply throughout all of humankind. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have the righteous and the lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with the elf? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separated, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, for I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. God says, you're the temple. The one that Solomon had built as a building, you are now that temple. I dwell in you. And you are to be my children, my sons and my daughters. You have nothing in common with unbelievers. But we are told not to marry unbelievers. Just as Solomon was told not to marry foreign wives, we in the church today are told not to marry non-believers. This is where we get depressed. Because just as sometimes God went to Solomon and told him, don't do this, people are going to ignore me. But I'm still obligated to tell the word of God whether you're going to listen or not. So what happens because of my experience being a believer for a long time and being a pastor for a long time, not as long as a believer, what I have observed is this. Most frequently is young women, sometimes young men. Frequently young women will say, I want to marry a Christian. Excellent. Their first mistake is they start dating non-Christians. But they fall in love. Just as Solomon fell in love with his wife. And they were, but I love him. And so the men... Most times, sometimes, when it's in the case of a guy, uh, she'll underst- he'll understand or she'll understand that they won't get married until the person makes a commitment to Christ. They know the game. The game is this. She won't marry me until I become a Christian. What do I need to become a Christian? Oh, I'm supposed to walk down an aisle, Shake the pastor's hand and say, I want to be a Christian. 
say a little sinner's prayer. I'll even go get in the baptism and get dunked. And that will satisfy her that I'm now a believer. She'll go, he's now satisfied me that I'm a believer, that he's a believer, and we get married. And guess what happened? He never darkens the door of a church again because he did it all to get married to her because of his love or lust or whatever it is for her and her quote-unquote commitment not to marry another. So if you find yourself in that position currently and you're going, but I love him. I can't see my life without him. And if he makes a commitment and gets dunked in the, in the, in the water, don't marry right away. Observe his life. Is his life consistent with a believer? Is he studying the word of God? Is he attending church? Is he trying to do ministry? Is he doing something other than say, well, I checked the boxes off of your list. I'm good now. But I know you won't listen to me because just like Solomon, I love him. He makes my heart pitter-patter. Turn, if you will, to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. It says this. But to the rest I say, not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. When a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cause, cases. But God has called us to peace. Or how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one. As God has called each in this manner, let us him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? And then he goes on. What Paul is basically saying is, if you, find, if you became a believer after you got married, it's okay. If your spouse consents to staying with you because you know now you've given your heart to Jesus and whatever, they're saying, if, if they want to stay married, then you stay married. If they want to leave, then you let them leave. That's, that's the rule. But I don't see that many cases of people becoming saved after they've already been married. It happens. But that's what he then says. But then he'll go on to say, what about when you've lost a husband. Later in that chapter and verse 39 says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. 
only in the Lord. So Paul is saying, once you've become married and, and your husband or your wife is now an, an unbeliever and he passes away, you're free to remarry. But your freedom is limited to a believer. Guardrail. Don't hit the guardrails. Stay inside the guardrails. Because let's face it, if we're honest, the natural tendency of we people is to not to live the Christian life. We have our appetites. We have our sins. We do all sorts of things we're not supposed to do. How hard is it when we have a believing spouse? At least there's two going in the same direction. But when you have a spouse who doesn't have the same commitment to God that you do, it is easy to follow them and not you. you as Paul will say in, in the book of Corinthians, don't be deceived. Bad company spoils good morals. You'll never take a fresh apple, stick it into a, a bunch of rotting apples, and get new apples. It will cause the apple to rot. You take a single rotten apple and put it into a bushel of fresh apples and they will all rot. God knows who we are. And God is not saying, oh, it's not that I don't want you to have fun. It's not that I don't want you to have a great life. In fact, that's what exactly what I want for you. I want you to have a life that is full and meaningful. But when your heart is pulled against it will never be that way the last scripture I want to take a look at we found in Proverbs I find very interesting the reason why I want to read this is because it was written by the very person I'm criticizing this morning Solomon the wisest man that ever lived he was so wise, he wrote an entire book that we call the book of Proverbs. And there's 31 chapters, and, and a lot of people will do some, a certain thing. What they'll do is they'll read one chapter of Proverbs every day through the month because it talks about wisdom. You're going, maybe I'll pick something up. So here's this guy who wrote about wisdom, is the most wise person, but yet wasn't wise enough. But sometimes we can still learn from that. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 8, it says this Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All that he would have done. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, I am so thankful for this, and I'll tell you why. Because I stand up here and give you the word of not the word of Joe. The great thing is, is whether I am a complete reprobate and a terrible person, and I am, and all of those things, the truth of what I'm delivering to you is the word of God, and it doesn't matter who I am. So if I turn out to be the worst corrupted person that you've ever known, the word of God is still true. 
Solomon knows at least enough to know that we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart because he learned what it was not. And do not lean on your own understanding. But I love him. God wants you to have a great, perfect life. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your paths Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your body and a refreshment to your bones. Notice. There's a saying that says, if you're the smartest person in a room, find another room. Don't be wise in your own Don't think you are the smartest person because even when Solomon messes up the way Solomon messed up, we can still learn from him. Sometimes the greatest lesson that we can learn is what not to do. I saw that person and how they conducted their lives. Don't want anything to do with it. So I'll meddle a little bit. I never had any temptation to take drugs. And there were two reasons for that. Reason number one, I wanted to be a lawyer, and I figured if I messed up in drugs, it would probably ruin that possibility. And I wanted to be a lawyer so that I could be president of the United States. Didn't work out too well. Became a lawyer, but not the rest. The second reason that I didn't want to get involved with drugs is I saw my friends who were involved with drugs. They would lie, cheat, and steal and sell their own family to get drugs. I go, if they would do that, why would I want them? So what they did taught me not to do that. So sometimes you can learn even from the most foolish people. Not what to do, but not what, what not to do. So trust in the Lord. Not with part of your heart. Not sometimes, but all of them. And even as we saw with David, that's still not a guarantee. Because he was a man after God's own heart, and he still messed up. But at least he got right when he did and was confronted with it. He repented. Solomon, the wisest man, did it. And do not lean on your own understanding. Yeah, but I know him. He's a good guy. He'll do the right thing. Not according to the word of God. Lean on him and his understanding. It's more than making a fruit salad without tomato. Lean on his understanding. God made you. He knows exactly who you are. He doesn't know just about your fingers and your toes and your cells. He knows every thought in your mind. He knows your intentions. He knows what makes you happy. He knows what makes you sad. He knows what makes you depressed. And he knows these things. He's saying, yeah, you can pursue that. But it'll be short life. But you can trust me today, tomorrow, and for eternity. 
So, in these last three episodes, what has been the common link in the bad decision? They have violated the word of God. Adam and Eve were told not to eat the fruit. They changed the word of God and then ate the fruit. David knew about the Ten Commandments and he violated a whole bunch of them. Solomon knew the word of God from Deuteronomy and God himself came twice to warn him and he violated the word of God. Now you may make the wrong stock pick. And it make you, may make you poorer or not as rich as you might want to have been, but you'll probably survive if you violate the word of God. There are consequences. Adam and Eve were thrown from the garden. They still had to work, but they had to work by the sweat of their brow as opposed to a really nice place to be. David's family became a wreck. And Solomon's kingdom is going to be torn from him because they violated the word of God. So, you know, Paul wrote about whether we should marry or not marry. Yeah, that's no big deal. Just telling you, be careful when you're confronted with the word of God, that you do it. Because the decisions when you don't have catastrophic consequences. And while I like to be a loner, I care about you. And I want you to have a good life. I want you to be prosperous. Won't you be happy? Won't you even be more happy? Won't you be joyful? I want you to come in smiling and say, I can't believe what God has done for me today. And how, how I want to yell hallelujah all the time because being with the Lord our God is awesome. As opposed to, man, I screwed up today. And I'm not too sure God is going to forgive me because of my decision. The amazing thing, even in all of these decisions that were wrong, God never said, I'm taking your salvation. That I'm giving you consequences. He's not here to take your salvation. He's here to give us guardrails, not to hit them, but to stay on the road so that we might have a wonderful, abundant, prosperous life. And I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. I'm talking about just following the word of God. Because if you are the poorest person who is hearing me of all the people in the world, you're the poorest one. You're a believer. You're richer than anyone knows. You have a house waiting for you that is made by God. That is going to last for an eternity. Love the Lord. With all your heart. 
all your mind, all your strength. And that is what is best for us. Paul is this. Word of God speak. Fall down like Talk to me, God. But the second part is, after you've talked to me, God, give me the strength and the ability to do it. And all God's people said,